Science and Answers. As parents, we share everything, or almost everything, with our children. But how can we share apologetics with them? Defending their Christian faith is vital and biblical, as we are told to always be ready to respond. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat interviews Hillary Morgan Farrar, and they will be discussing her book entitled Mama Bear Apologetics. Now, here's Pat. So what we have is we have kids that maybe have grown up in the church, but then once they become parents themselves, there is no cultural pressure to go back to church. Or you have kids who didn't grow up in the church, and there's no reason, there's no nostalgic reason for them to return to the church. So according to the statistics, it's like they talk about anywhere between, um, I think, 60 to 85% of kids leave the church after college, and then they give kind of a a smaller percentage of how many return. But what it comes down to is we're losing about 35% of the church population every single generation, which itself is really disturbing. But that that in itself is just looking at church attendance. That's not even looking at what do these people actually believe, because now that we have progressive Christianity, we have people in churches that believe that Jesus didn't actually exist or if he did exist, he was just a, a moral leader who, he didn't actually physically rise from the dead. He was just a pawn in a religious, you know, he was just showing people how to submit to authority. And they're believing things like that, a very non-salvific faith. So even looking at the number of people that are in church do, does not even tell us the number of people who actually have a believing and salvific faith in Christ, which I think is probably even more, it's going to increase those statistics right there. So that myth that they leave and then they come back, that's not the case. Or the myth that if if you do Awana, youth group, and, you know, Christian schools, that they'll be okay. Well, if your Christian schools in Awana are only teaching what the Bible says and not why the Bible says it and why the Bible can be trusted, then a kid, as soon as they hear, oh, this is a book that was written by I even, I literally had um, a nurse that I was talking to a couple months ago that said, oh, the Bible was just written by a bunch of um, white males. And I said, well, I mean, just that, that buzzword right there. I said, do you consider Middle Eastern people to be white? And she said, well, no. I said, you realize the book was written by Jews in the Middle East. And she was like, oh, okay. But she had fully bought into this belief that it's just a book written by white males, and so she didn't have to believe it. If they're not willing to dig into these questions and they just kind of absorb whatever they're told, if we teach them then to just absorb whatever we teach them in church, well, the second they, they're, they're just learning from authority. They're taking it on authorities, on the authority of the authority. Once they get new authorities, they're going to switch what they absorb if we have not taught them to critically think through what the authority is saying, and which that's the chew and sit method that we talk about in Chapter 3. Yes, you know, and one of the things you talk about is helping young people develop discernment. Now, what do you mean by discernment? I have a, a way that I like to talk about discernment, about what it's not, and then what it is, that a lot of times people see discernment 
as just pointing out everything that's wrong with something, and they call that discernment, which really kind of gets on my nerves because I just, I think, uh, as I say, I think that makes you the stench of self-righteousness, not the aroma of Christ. Mm, um, so I, uh, the, I say that there, we need three things in order to really exercise discernment. We need to see things accurately. Number two, we need to be able to recognize the good. And number three, recognize the bad. We need to be able to do all three of those. If we're not seeing it accurately, then basically we're fighting against maybe a straw man version of something which does nobody any good. But secondly, we need to identify the good, because I think in, in every single one of the, the isms in this book, I tried to go through what is the good that people were intending from this, because nobody thinks, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and spout lies. They, everybody thinks that they are crusading for the greater good. And so if we can identify what the kernel of truth is there, there was um, a guy named Walter Martin who wrote the book Kingdom of the Cult. And he said that cults are the church's unpaid bills. And what he means by that are, is basically when you have a cult that comes out, they're usually picking up on something that traditional Orthodox Christianity has largely ignored. And then they focus everything on that and build their entire cult around that one truth. But then they have a whole bunch of lies that kind of come along with it. I think we see the same thing happening with worldviews is that culture is picking up on something that maybe Orthodox Christianity or, or just uh, evangelical Christianity has ignored. And so then they hyper-focus on that. And while they're, they have a legitimate critique, all their solutions are very, very unbiblical. But what we can do in discernment is we can look for the kernel of truth first that they have discovered. And then we start looking at what is what are the lies that have crept into that. And in that sense, we separate the good from the bad, accept the good, and reject the bad. And that, that's kind of what I would say discernment is in a nutshell, is that phrase. Separate the good from the bad, accept the good, reject the bad. Yes, you know, one of the things I appreciate about the book is that discernment is not just saying, well, it's not a Christian film, or it's not a Christian book, therefore it's bad. <laughs> you know, and one, yes. yeah, one of the things that young people complained about is that the church is too overprotective and they demonize everything. That's one of the mm -hmm. uh, statistics from Barna. Instead, you know, to go in there and say, what was true in here? What was good? You know, what is the message here? Is that true? Is it false? How do we know to be able to discuss literature and movies and books like that and teaching kids to discern through the process is outstanding. I remember talking to some teenagers about the movie Avatar, and they were surprised, first of all, that I as a Christian had seen it, you know, and then, <laughs> and then uh, when I, th I said, hey, that's a great movie. Do you know what the message is? You know, and they were at, you know, it started to generate great discussion. And then I said, well, it's environmentalism. And to create the Garden of Eden, you have to be a pantheist. You know, is that true? You know, and that generated tremendous discussion. And so to be able to do what you just said, not just say, well, it's not Christian. Therefore, you know, it, it must be evil. Everything's not black and white and that simple as you, as you state. Yes. Now, how do you approach, you know, viewpoints of others that conflict with your own? I mean, you know, as you said in your book, you don't want kids to, quote, you know, be argumentative about everything that mm -hmm. they disagree with. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, there's, there's a certain level of black and white thinking where you will, you will get that a little bit at the younger years. And that's why we're teaching them this process of how to, you know, identify the good, identify the bad, accept the good, reject the bad. And so we have a, an acronym in here called ROAR. 
that we use for each each of the the chapters in part two that I think is great to teach to our kids, where uh, ROAR stands for, number one, recognize the message, kind of like what you were asking about Avatar, saying, okay, what was the message that's going on? So that's the first R. The second one is offer discernment, and that's where you're asking, okay, what is the good that was trying to be, because, you know, environmentalism, the idea of taking care of the earth, that's a good message. And so we can affirm that and we can say that that is a good message. Now, what do they think is the solution? So now we're going to recognize the bad in there. What's their solution? Well, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe pantheism isn't the way to go with that one. So that's offer discernment. So then argue would be the A, argue for a healthier approach where we say, what is the good that they were intending? Now, how can we take that to scripture and say the good that they were intending is actually better accomplished through biblical worldview and through biblical teaching. So we can affirm what they were trying to do and say, hey, we're on your side. Let's do this. I think this might be a better way to do it. And then the final R in ROAR is reinforced through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. And this is where you're just having conversations with your kids about the message, about the good and the bad, about the how is the Bible actually accomplished this goal better. And one of the things that I love about this book is that we incorporate prayer into this, where sometimes I think apologetics, people think this is all just a heady, you know, intellectual pursuit. We don't recognize as much as we should that the battle is taking place in the spiritual realm, and there are spiritual strongholds that need to be broken down, and they're not just broken down through good argumentation. They are broken down on our knees, praying before God, asking Him to, you know, remove the scales from the eyes to to take the spiritual blindness away, to, to free someone from the captivity of a bad philosophy. And that is a battle that needs to take place in prayer. And I think women and moms are especially good at doing this. And that's why I wanted to include that in this book, because I thought that would really resonate with what they're already doing. Yes. Now, you, you talk a lot about apologetics. Maybe it's time to define what it is and is it a you know relevant subject? You know, there's people out there listening saying, "I'm not a pastor or a Bible scholar." You know, is that something I need to be involved in? Apologetics. <laughs> yes. So uh, the the number one misconception with apologetics is it sounds like the word apologizing. So it's like I'm not apologizing for my faith. Heck, no, I'm not going to do that. So the word apologetics comes from the Greek apologia, and this was actually the word of, of apologist was the word that was used probably like. Uh, in the early early first couple of centuries for lawyers who were giving a reasoned defense for something. So we're not arguing in the sense of being argumentative, but we're giving reasons for why we believe. And one of, one of the things that I, I hear all the time when my husband and I tell people that we do apologetics is they say, well, if you knew all the answers, you wouldn't need faith. And I say, According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things we hope for and the certainty of things that we don't see. So anything that assures us even more and things that make us more certain and more sure should theoretically increase our faith according to the biblical definition of it. So, yeah, we're not arguing we're, and we're not being defensive, but we are giving reasons for why we believe something. I, I like to use the example of, uh, for the word faith that if someone were to ask you to recommend a babysitter or an accountant, you wouldn't name somebody that you'd never use. It's like you want someone who you have worked with, who has proven their reliability to you, that you have evidence 
for why they're a good babysitter. You have evidence for why they're a good accountant. And those reasons are why you would have say, oh, I have faith in this person. The idea that faith is just uh, believing things and, uh, you know, despite there being any evidence, that's not a biblical definition of faith. Yes. And the reasoning process that you just described here, we actually do that every day. If you yes. ask, if you ask someone, why, you know, what car should I get? And I say Toyota. First question you're going to ask is, why? Give me some why? good reasons. Yeah. What school should I send my child to? Well, I think you should send them to a private school. First question, the last one, why? <laughs> and so you're talking about uh, reasoning faculties. You may think, oh, it's only for the scholars or the pastor. No, we actually do that every single day. That's why apologetics is so critical. And our children yeah. need to learn how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And just this idea of uh, it's only for pastors, I think we have really taken the world, we've taken cues from the world on this idea of the separation between the secular and the spiritual, where we think that there's some things that are only for the professional Christians and other things that are for the rest of us. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are all called to know the reasons for the hope that is in us. It's not saying pastors you need to know this. It's saying as a Christian you need to know. And exactly like what you said, it's like if you talk to guys about which sports team is the best or if you talk to my husband about you know which oh, musician yeah. he likes the best, they will give you a litany of reasons. And so why are we treating the thing that we are basing our eternal salvation on as less important than the sports team that we, that we support? Yeah, hey, that, that's a great illustration. And as you state in your book, moms are on the front line because you spend the most time with your children from the womb all the way up to they leave for college. So moms need mm -hmm. to be equipped in this arena we call apologetics. Yep. You know, I say moms are the yeah. ones getting the questions, so moms need to be the one ones answering the questions. I think youth apologetics is great. I think that you know all the training is great, but I really think that unless we're going after the moms, because they are the ones getting the questions first, and so that's who I want to equip. Yes, you know, and uh, when we began our apologetics conference here in Hawaii, those attending were mostly men. You know, but it's great to see now women attending our conferences and getting involved because they're seeing the relevance of this as their children are questioning their faith, you know, which is actually a good thing. Mm hmm Absolutely agree. And one of the things you state in your book is that actually teens aren't leaving the church in college. They're actually checking out by the time they're in junior high, actually. Yes, yes. And that's something that I think that a lot of parents don't realize. And, and I use the example, I think, in there about just the number of things that are available through Googling. And I think about what an inquisitive kid I was. If I had had these questions, I would have gone to Google to look for the answers. And the kind of nonsense that you can get on there can be very, very confusing. And especially kids that age don't know how to separate a good source from a bad source. They don't know how to separate someone who's biased from someone who is trying to objectively give evidence. And if they're not asking you. They're asking someone. I think that there's a, something that I think every church needs to do. They need a number one, they need to have an apologist there in the church. But number two, I call it the, the stump the pastor, where kids are allowed to ask whatever questions they want and see if they can. And when you turn it into like, ooh, let's see if I can stump the pastor. Now, obviously, you don't want questions like when one of our mama bears kids asked, uh, did Jesus have head life? Well, of course, you know, we can't really answer that question, but asking the questions about the problem of evil, asking about how, do, how does a good God send people to hell, 
these are the kinds of things that, as we saw, the, the leader from Hillsong just this week is saying, and apparently in his world, nobody's talking about these things. And, of course, in my world, everybody's talking about these things. But we need to give our kids the opportunity to talk about these things by giving them the chance to ask these questions. I remember doing this with my husband at a church. We had a sixth grader ask, what is the difference between Gnosticism and Satanism? So if we think that they are not having these deeper questions, I mean, that it's just not true. And when they get enough people telling them, well, just have faith, or I don't know, and then never go to help look up the answer and never get back with them on that, what they're taught is the logic of a fifth grader, a sixth grader, is more powerful than the, the answers that God provides. And so why would I want to worship a God who can be stumped by a 12-year-old? Wow, that's that's outstanding. Yeah, you know, in, in the Barna survey, one of the top reasons teens left the church is because they didn't find it a safe place for them to mm-hmm. ask their questions. And as you just yep. stated, they've got some deep questions that they're struggling with. You know, I share my testimony you know, growing up in a Buddhist home and at the high school level, I was asking, why am I here on this earth? If everything ends in death, why not just have a good time and die? Why Why am I studying? Yeah. And all that. And I was struggling and people were surprised that I was asking those deep kind of questions. A lot of them thought, you know, I'm just into athletics or something. But uh, <laughs> as you stated here, yeah, teens at a very young age are struggling with these questions and they need somewhere they can ask and wrestle with these questions and have someone point them to the truth or else where are they going to get it? Yeah, and, and I'd like to mention right there, one of the things that uh, when, when John did uh, the Stump the Pastor, he actually did it with a pastor from a previous church that we did, and I was literally, I mean, about to jump out of my seat because the pastor punted to the mystery of God over and over and over mm-hmm. again. So yeah. basically he said, well, we can't know God's ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. But he would say it for things that I'm like, no, there's a really good answer for this. And so if you're going to be doing this, some, you know, some the pastor, you need to make sure that if you ever punt to the mysteriousness of God, you better make sure that that one doesn't have an already thought out answer. So stuff like, you know, can we understand the Trinity? That's something that I'm not sure that we're ever really fully going to understand here in our human form, because I don't think there's any analogy that we have that really fully encapsulates the Trinity. So, I mean, there are things about Christianity that are a little bit mysterious. But when it comes to why do, why do bad things happen, saying, well, we just can't know because, you know, who are we to question God? No, there are good reasons that we can give for the problem of evil, for hell, for uh, the resurrection, all these things, and punting to just that, you know, God's a mystery, that is, to me, that's almost worse than not not letting them ask questions at all. Yeah. Now, Hillary, you know, what do you identify as the biggest lies within the culture today? I think that, one of the, well, okay, so they kind of go together. It started with kind of postmodernism where it says that we can create our own truth. And basically, that's gone into moral relativism, but emotionalism, I would say, is probably the number one, and that's where the strength of one's emotions determine what's true. That is what we see with people who are leaving the faith, that certain tenets of the faith, they start realizing, ooh, this tenet of the faith makes me really uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I can believe this. And I remember being at Biola, 
and someone saying, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this idea of hell and, you know, how would you explain that to someone? And Clay Jones, one of the professors, says, if you are comfortable with the idea of hell, you don't understand the doctrine of hell. It's this idea that anything that's true is going to make me feel good and anything that's true is going to, is going to, uh, you know, have this, you know, peaceful, loving, wonderful feelings that accompany it. And if, if all these wonderful, warm, fuzzy feelings don't accompany it, then I need to question truthfulness. And so we have undermined the ability to have truth. We've undermined the ability to really recognize reality. And once you basically get away with the ability to recognize reality, it is all over from there. And so I would say that's one of the biggest ones that we have in uh, along, along with if people don't have emotion, then they say, okay, well, then the only way I can know something is through science. And basically that leaves out 90% of the human experience. So neither of those are good ways to find truth. So I think those are probably some of the biggest lies. The idea that I can have my truth, you can have your truth, and a, an argument, the strength of an argument is predicated by the strength of one's emotion behind it. Those are some of the most dangerous ideas that I think are out there right now. Yes, you know, this has been a great uh, discussion uh, with Hillary Morgan Ferrer on her book, Mama Bear Apologetics, the book we are highlighting here. Now, Hillary, you know, I guess as we bring this to a close, what are some specific ways in which a mother can protect her child from the many lies the world wants to push upon their children? Yeah. The number one thing that comes to mind is something that I remember my pastor's wife saying all growing up because, you know, they had kids and when their uh, oldest daughter was just a year younger than me. So I hung out at their house all the time. But she said, I don't want my children hearing about anything that they haven't heard in my kitchen first. Wow. And so this idea that what we want to do, especially as parents, is we don't want our kids to discover these ideas on their own outside of our house. We want to ask them the tough questions in our house. We want them to wrestle with these questions in, in our home so that when they encounter them outside of the house, they're like, oh, I've heard about that before. We've talked about that. I understand mm -hmm. why that doesn't make sense and how it doesn't basically pan out in the real world. It's kind of like moral relativism, this idea that everybody has a right to be right. Well, when you dig into that, it itself is self-refuting because people's ideas of right are going to conflict. So what do you do when they conflict? They can't both be true. It's just a logical fallacy. You can't have two contradicting things both be true at the same time and in the same way. So when they hear that lie outside, they think, I've already heard about this, and, and we've already debunked it. We don't want them hearing about this from their friends or from media first. We want them to hear it in our homes first. You should be the first one bringing up all these supposed contradictions in the Bible or the supposed alternate explanations of the resurrection or these ideas that everybody can have their own truth. We want that to come from our homes first. Yes, that's fantastic. Now, people listening to this interview, if they want more resources from you and Mama Bear Apologetics Ministry, where can they go to find more resources? They can go to our website, which is, uh, so Mama is spelled M-A-M-A. -A. It, it makes me laugh how many versions of Mama I've gotten from people. MamaBearApologetics.com, and we have blogs, we have podcasts, we even have what I call a blog cast, where we just read articles that we like so that if you don't have time to read and you've got 15 minutes or 10 minutes or sometimes five, you can just listen to, uh, to an article that you wouldn't normally have time to read. And we have a resources page that we are still building, but that just gives lots of resources for different ages and for different topics. So you can go there. And you can also purchase the book, Mama Bear Apologetics, on 
Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, ChristianBooks.com. Yes, fantastic. That's Mama Bear Apologetics and the author we've been interviewing here, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Like I said, when I read this book, I had it on the shelf because I didn't think I'd be too interested in it. I thought it'd be directed towards mostly women. But it's an outstanding book, I think, for youth pastors and fathers, Christian leaders as well. Just an outstanding book. So, Hillary, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you so much. for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh,